This talk was given by Vanessa Zuise Goddard Sensei. Zuise Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazuisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. I am not going to talk about religious beliefs but about matters so obvious that it has gone out of style to mention them. I believe in my neighbors. I know their faults, and I know their virtues far outweigh those faults. I believe in my townspeople. You can knock on any door in our town, say I'm hungry, and you will be fed. I believe in our fellow citizens. Our headlines are splashed with crime. Yet for every criminal, there are 10,000 honest, decent, kindly people. Decency is not news. It is buried in the obituaries, but it is a force stronger than crime. I believe in the patient gallantry of nurses, in the tedious sacrifices of teachers. I believe in the unseen and unending fight against desperate odds that goes on quietly in almost every home in the land. I believe in the honest craft of workers. And I believe in my whole race, yellow, white, black, red, brown, in the honesty, courage, intelligence, durability, and goodness of the overwhelming majority of my brothers and sisters everywhere on this planet. I believe that this animal, barely up from the apes, will endure longer than her home planet, will spread out to other planets, carrying with her her honesty, her insatiable curiosity, her unlimited courage, and her noble, essential decency. This I believe with all my heart. This is part of a slightly longer piece by Robert A. Heinlein, who in the 1950s was known as the dean of science fiction. He wrote A Stranger in a Strange Land, for example. And he did this, this was part of a series, an NPR series that then became a book called This I Believe. And they interviewed a number of people, some young, some old, men, women, all occupations, no occupation, and asked them to describe in a few hundred words their philosophy, the philosophy that they lived by. And what Heinlein sees as this noble, essential decency, this uniquely human quality, he says, I thought would be a a good way to speak about right action. Right action is the fourth factor in the Noble Eightfold Path. I have been uh, speaking about the path and, and each of these factors and the path, is, as you may remember, is made of uh, the noble Eightfold Path is right view, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And right actions is uh, Samyak Karmanta. 
and it falls under the category of virtue or ethical conduct. And it is specifically understood as refraining from killing, from stealing, and from sexual misconduct, which, of course, are the first three of the ten grave precepts. But we can also think about it a little more widely in terms of action that doesn't create suffering. It doesn't create hurtful or negative karma. Somebody shared with me the term fruitful action, and that is a very nice way to think about uh, right action, you know, action that is fruitful for self and others. And what makes it such? In order to affect right action, we must first acknowledge that there is suffering and that it is created, in fact, as the Buddha said. And to, to know this, not because we've been told that we should, because it's the Buddhist thing to believe, but because we have personally experienced this in our lives. And I don't think this is automatic, just because you start practicing. In, in my own uh, practice, when I first came here and heard the Four Noble Truths, I had, I had read them before, and I think I just skipped over them. Because I remember when I heard it, I just didn't, it, it didn't quite connect. I didn't know what people were talking about. What is all this suffering that people are talking about? Not because my life had been all rose-colored in any way, but I, I, I understood suffering as the kind of more traditional definition, as, as hardship and distress, wretchedness, you know, torture, trauma. These are all the, the terms that you see in the dictionary when you look up suffering. And it just seemed a bit much to me. But Danisaru Bhikkhu, in that, that refuge reading that we did last tango, he translated it as stress. I, I thought that was, that was interesting. I hadn't seen that before. So it really is this, this constant, this constant underlying hum, this unseen and unending fight against desperate odds that goes on quietly in almost every home in the land, it's probably safe to say that it is in every home, in the land, in every person, whether we're aware of it or not. There's a, a New Yorker cartoon where a, a man is bellowing at his wife, and she's saying to him, why can't you live a life of quiet desperation like everyone else? <laughs> And this cartoon appeared in 1960, so not much has changed. There's that, that never-ending thrum, you know, like when someone is hard of hearing, you, you know there's a sound, but you don't quite know where it's coming from. And, and angst, if you will, that as far as we know, is also a uniquely human quality. Although, you know those, those pigeons, that, that pair of pigeons, um, they're always making a racket, they hang around the building. 
the day that it was pouring, I think it was uh, Tuesday, Tuesday afternoon, I was walking the Kyosaku and I saw them. They were sitting side by side on the windowsill here and they were completely silent for the first time. It was actually quite touching. And one of them seemed to be just resting there. Uh, its, its wings were tucked in and it was just kind of sitting there. But the smaller one, which I took to be the female, looked kind of concerned, actually, I have to say. She was kind of craning her neck and her head was tilted as if she was trying to look past the window. It was looking at the rain. And it kind of looked like she was asking, you know, what is going on? As, as Shugan Sensei said the other day, you know, what, what is this? And of course, that is the question. And where is this suffering coming from? And once we start paying attention, paying close attention, we realize it is deeply, deeply connected to this sense of me, the sense of a, a solid, separate self. And there's countless Buddhist teachers who have said, well, the, the only solution to this is to realize no self. This is the description of freedom, of great peace, they say. And if it seems like maybe that is too much, you know, that, that how can, can this thought, this belief, this sense of me create all of this and all of the suffering? Just next time, next time you find yourself struggling, ask yourself, what is at the heart of this? Not the story, you know, not the, the justifications, not the, the train of thought that we layer on top to make sense of why we struggle, but really what is at the heart of this conflict right now? And so right action is understood literally to mean from uh, refraining from taking what is not given, you know, whether it's life, whether it's uh, personal property, or whether it's your physical, sexual property, if you will. You know, I was telling people in the city a few weeks ago, I was there by myself one afternoon at the temple, and somebody called claiming that he was the, from Con Edison, the electric company. And he just demanded right off, very gruffly, to speak with the owner. And I said, well, he's not here. And he said, well, we haven't received any payments in this account, and so we're going to shut down the electricity in an hour. And I thought, that's not good. <laughs> and then I flashed on a call that we had gotten here a few months before that was exactly the same. Somebody else had picked up the phone. They said they were from Con Edison and said they were going to shut down our electricity because we hadn't paid. And so they passed the call to me, and as the guy repeats his demand... I suddenly realized, wait a second, we don't have Conedison, we use NYSEG. And I said that, click, he hung up. And so in the city, I flashed on this, and I said to the guy, well, we don't have Conedison, we have NYSEG. And he started to say something, and I said goodbye and hung up. And then I thought, well, I should better check. And so I went to the files, and we actually do use Conedison at the temple. (laughs) 
but we had paid and it was still uh, a scam. And I said, you know, I really wanted to call him back and say, is this really how you make your, your livelihood? Uh, intimidating people into giving you what is not yours? I didn't. I didn't call, but I really wanted to. So right action is not just literally um, refraining you know, from killing, but really all manner of, of taking life. The killing of someone's hopes, someone's aspirations, the killing of their humanity you know, through torture, through prejudice, through disregard, and our own as well. That sometimes subtle, sometimes not so subtle, uh, killing, um, extinguishing of our own life or a piece of our life. So to, to not waste and not wait, no, not throw any, any of it away. It's also, you know, refraining from stealing someone's identity, hijacking someone's time, misappropriating someone's ideas. All the gross and, and subtle forms of sexual misconduct, you know, cheating, possessing, objectifying another, flirting to get what you want, you know, to, feel, to feel important as revenge, fantasizing. But that's just happening in your mind, right? I mean, it doesn't really hurt anyone. Is that true? Is that true? When we place, when we pay close attention, is that really true? That it doesn't hurt? What is, what is going on in my mind at that moment? What is going on in the world at that moment as a result of choosing to use my mind in that way? And what all these, what makes all these transgressions possible is our um, sometimes it seems insistent, insistent penchant for seeing others as others, as the other, the others who are um, in my way or who are actively causing me pain, or just just not helping, not supporting my search for happiness. One of the other writers in in this collection, this this I believe, said that that we don't really know what happiness is, but but that we do know and feel and follow the imperative to keep searching. So that that pursuit of happiness that we see as our inalienable inalienable right. But I I don't know. I think I think maybe we do know. I think actually we do know what happiness is. I think I think we've all have lived moments where the most important thing was not me. It wasn't even the only thing. At times when we when we felt fulfilled, not because we were getting what we wanted 
or because things were going our way, but because we actually found ourselves, even if it was just for a moment, in tune with the way things are. Not that we liked the way things are or that we agreed with them particularly, but that we were in tune, which meant that we were accepting them, you know, as Yudo said yesterday, that we truly and deeply accepted them. And not only accepted them, but that we decided that we could thrive in their midst. There's a, a poet, Tibor Tolles, who was a, a Hungarian poet. And in the time of communist rule in Hungary, in the 1950s, he was imprisoned. And it's not really clear why. But he was sent to prison for about nine years. And most of the time, he was in solitary confinement. And he was imprisoned with other poets and, and intellectuals. And so they decided to spend their time first choosing a poem that had been written originally in English and voting and then translating it into Hungarian. And so this would take months. Uh, He didn't have any paper, so he was probably, I'm guessing, he communicated maybe with the help of a sympathetic guard or something. So they would pass notes on the, the food trays and on the hidden in the laundry, and circulate first the several options of the poems that they wanted to translate, and they finally settled on "Oh Captain, My Captain" by Whitman, which, as you probably know, is uh, an elegy to Lincoln, who in 1865 had just been assassinated when Whitman wrote it, because they all they all knew it in the original English, and so they set about translating it. Now, uh, Tolles didn't have, uh, as I said, paper in his cell, and so he covered his shoes with a very thin film of soap. And then with a toothpick, he would write out the lines. He would memorize the translated line in Hungarian and somehow pass it on to the next prisoner. And in this way, several dozen translations began to circulate around the prison. And if you think about it, in his case, he had to have them all in his mind. That was the only way that he could um, hold them. And then they would vote. So they spent uh, some time, and then they voted on the, the poem that had its, the, they thought, the highest uh, achievement in terms of the accuracy and the rhyme of the translation. And then they moved on to a poem by Schiller. In no way being a victim of the circumstances, but deciding to thrive in their midst. In the Upajatana Sutra, the Sutra on uh, Subjects of Contemplation, it says... A disciple of the noble ones considers this. I am owner of my actions, heir to my actions, born of my actions, related through my actions, and have my actions as my arbitrator. Whatever I do, for good or for evil, to that will I fall heir. 
A disciple of the Noble Ones also considers that to the extent that there are beings, past and future, passing away and re-arising, all beings are owners of their actions. Whatever they do, for good or for evil, to that will they fall heir. When the disciple reflects on this, the factors of the path take birth. The disciple sticks with that path, develops it, cultivates it. Then the fetters are abandoned, the obsessions destroyed. I and all beings are owners of our actions. So whatever we do, good or bad, to this we will fall heir. These, these actions become our inheritance, and they in fact also become our, our legacy. And knowing this, what kind of actions will we take? What kind of actions are affirming of all life? Again, including our own life. You know, we are one of the beings that needs to be saved. What kind of actions are generous and giving that honor the body, yours and mine and the body of this, this planet, this earth, which, if Heinlein is right, will outlive. We'll have to change a few things along the way, but I guess it's not impossible. What actions reflect the honesty, courage, intelligence, durability, and goodness of this human race? And reflect the truth that that all those bodies out there are actually not different from this body here. And at which point does hearing this or does taking in this, this teaching become truth, become my truth? And how does it actually happen? Which is really the same as asking, you know, how does realization happen? Not quickly. I'll tell you that. I mean, that seeing can happen in an instant, but I think... Doing, doing what you have seen takes a whole lifetime. Lincoln said, I shall do nothing in malice, for what I deal with is too vast for malicious dealing. What we deal with is indeed too vast for malicious dealing. It's too too vast for selfish concerned, you know, for, for limited caring. I mean, actually, it's too vast to be killed or pilfered or abused. But that doesn't stop us from trying in our confusion. And it certainly doesn't neutralize the effect of our actions. You know, to, to say, I can't hurt you because yourself is empty, I mean, not only is it deluded, it's dangerous. And at the same time, we do have to realize that the self is empty. We do have to see clearly the way things are.
Chokinima Rinpoche, a Tibetan teacher, says that Dharma means the unmistaken. It's that which is not confused. And he says the way to be unmistaken is by first learning, then reflecting, then training in being unconfused. A disciple reflects on the fact that whatever actions they take, to those actions they will fall heir. And reflecting like this, the factors of the path take birth. And the disciple sticks with that path, develops it, and cultivates it. And as they do so, the fetters are abandoned and the obsessions destroyed. Learning, reflecting, and training and being unconfused Unconfused about the self, unconfused about things, unconfused about mind. This endless obsession with me and you lessens. The boundaries become faint and eventually disappear. And I see that what I do unto you, I do unto myself. And I think then we become decent towards each other, not because we should, but because we see there's no other way to live and actually be happy. Through affecting, through practicing right action, we become activists of the deepest and broadest kind, promoting and directing spiritual transformation. I experience this this work does require a a tremendous degree of attention to notice what you believe, what I believe, and how those beliefs play out in every single interaction that I have. The, The stories, the one or two stories I've learned to tell myself make up who I am to question those beliefs over and over again and then to look at them more closely because some of them are quite subtle and difficult to see and I think I think that the longer we practice the more this is this is true because the the bigger stuff gets smaller and so you have to pay, pay closer attention to the stuff that is not so obvious So I've always thought you really have to want to be clear rather than to be right. And you have to want it again. And you have to want it when you don't want it. And you have to remember when you feel that it would be easier to forget. I've been enjoying and appreciating uh, over at Dharma Communication seeing the many ways in which people remind themselves to practice, remind themselves of their aspiration. Someone has a photo of a loved one who's passed away on their desk. Someone has a copy of the evening gatha reminding them that time does swiftly pass and opportunity is lost. 
someone has a, a screensaver with the four immeasurables or a picture of, of Kanon Bodhisattva. Several people have some kind of statue, a Buddha, between the keyboard and the screen. And they're all saying, you know, I will not forget, no matter what life presents me with. You know, I won't go back to sleep because I've been there, and that's not what I want for my life. Every time we let go of a thought here in the Zendo, we're also practicing right action. Every time we choose for that instant to be unconfused. How else would we realize this no-self that the teachers speak of? As long as these thoughts and these stories are constantly recreating me, it's, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to see. And that is why we place such emphasis on the stillness and the silence. That's why we do Sashin. It makes it that much easier to see, to practice moment after moment, wholeheartedly being unconfused, being unmistaken. And so let me end as I began, but this time with my own words. I'm not talking about religious beliefs, but about matters that are neither obvious nor obscure, yet they do bear stating every now and then. I believe in human beings and in our infinite capacity for wisdom and kindness. The strength of our confusion will never be commensurate with our ability to learn and reflect and act according to what is true. I believe in the luminous Buddha nature that is in every single thing in the universe, a nature that is indestructible. I believe in our mutual reliance. I believe that until the very last day that men and women walk on this earth, there will always be seekers whose lives will not admit going halfway will not accept the easy answer. For them, there's no pursuit of happiness because they know each moment is an arrival. For them, that happiness is not complete until it's everyone's. But as impossible as this may seem, they know it is attainable in this lifetime. That's why, in the end, I believe we would rather be clear than be right. Why in our search for peace and for freedom, for basic love and for dignity, we will always be unstoppable. This I believe with all my heart. For more talks, to get information about Zuise Sensei's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazuisegoddard.org.